So yeah, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take almost a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is the word of God. I'll now invite the uh, other Don up, who's going to come and read the second uh, Bible passage to us. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Matt, and good evening, everybody. We're looking at John chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. John 6, verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, 
they said, Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Well, it is an honor to be back here in this church. It was about 10 years ago that I was here. Um, Probably most of you don't remember, and I don't remember most of your faces, Um, but it is a privilege to join up with you again, not least under the auspices of Trinity College. The passage that was just read is, for many of us, sufficiently common that we're not shocked by it. But the language is itself odd. 
You've got to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. We sing about it. Feed me till I want no more. What does it mean? Well, this is one of those passages where it's sometimes helpful to come in a little tangentially. Clearly, there's some connection between Jesus' bread of life discourse, as it's called, and the feeding of the 5,000 that immediately precedes it. There is also some sort of connection between this talk about Jesus as the bread of life and the account of God giving manna in the Old Testament. There are allusions in our verses to Old Testament bread of God. But I think there's something else we must pick up before we plunge our way through the text. Let me ask a few questions. If you ask any five-year-old in Perth, where does food come from, what will they say? IGA, or whatever the co-op is, or the particular store that you use. But if you ask someone reared exclusively on a farm, their answer will be different. Their answer will be from plant and animals. The association of food with something else depends a bit on your context, as we'll see. Another question. What is the staple diet of Australia? Well, that's that's not an easy question to answer, partly because there are so many different immigrant groups with their own uh, preferences, with many, many, many uh, restaurants reflecting the cuisine of different countries, but also because there's enough prosperity here that you can pick and choose quite a lot, too. But in many parts of the world, you, you answer with one word, rice or yams. In first century Palestine, the answer was bread and fish. That means the association of the word bread was not in terms of cultural preference, still less going to an IGA store and discovering 35 different kinds of bread and you've now got to choose. No, bread is something you have to have or you die. You starve. Number three. What happens to our food if there is catastrophic drought or raging flood? Well, if you can't grow the food yourself and you live in times before the modern world where infrastructures guarantee rapid transit, then clearly you, you may starve. You will at least go hungry. But what we complain about if there is ravaging flood is higher prices. Oh, you'll get food in Australia. Don't worry. It'll come in. It'll come in by boat. It'll come in by plane. It'll, 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 it'll get sorted out. You just pay more money for it. That's all. But in the first century, you needed to have the crops come in. Or there was a lot of hunger, maybe death. Why do we work? So we can buy stuff. But in the first century, about 85% of your income went on food. Why do you work? So that you can eat. That's a different set of mental associations with the word work. Do you see? One more. 
What's your favorite snack food? Snack food? In many cultures, the notion of snack food is bizarre. Food is what you eat at mealtime in order to stay alive and get the energy to work so that you can earn some more money to provide more food. Snack food? Now, our questions are not wrong, still less immoral. They are appropriate for a 21st century, industrialized, well-to-do country. But they are not mental associations of these words with the realities of the first century. And we will discover as we work through this passage that you've got to think in first century terms in order to see what Jesus is getting at. So what does the text mean when it says that Jesus is the bread of life? How shall we understand the flow of this passage? We'll focus on verses 25 to 59 and break it down into four parts. Number one. Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he himself is God's manna, God's bread. Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he himself is God's bread, God's manna. Verse 25 finds him on the other side of the lake, that is, on the western side of Lake Galilee. The feeding of the 5,000 took place on the eastern side. And in the preceding verses, you will recall, Jesus joined his own apostles in their boat. They started to move across the lake. The storm came. He walked on the water. And then eventually they landed on the western side. That meant that the crowds that he had fed the day before were still on the eastern side. And now they, they look for him. They cannot find him. They cross at the fords to the north of the lake. And they're looking for him. And eventually they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? He had withdrawn into the hill country. How did they escape their interest, their sentinels, as it were, to get through them and get to the other side of the lake? Jesus does not respond to their question, but challenges their motives. Verse 26 Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, at one level, of course, they did see the signs. They were there. They saw the feeding of the 5,000, but they did not see it as a sign. They did not see its significance. They saw it as a display of power, but they didn't see what it meant. And so Jesus says, you're asking this question, not really because you want me, not because you see the significance of what you've seen. You just saw a great display of power and you had your tummies filled. So Jesus rebukes their purely materialistic motives, their crass materialism. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. In other words, you are focused so much on getting 85% of your income now to feed your bellies, provided for free through a miracle from me, that at the end of the day, you're not really interested in eternal life. You're only interested in the life of this world. And that's not why I've come. You can seek blessings from God that are purely at a material level, and they are blessings from God. But at the end of the day, if that's all that you want from me, you you don't understand why I'm here at all. What you should be doing is pursuing eternal life, which the Son of Man gives you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. 
In other words, Jesus, as is so common in the Gospels, redirects attention away from events and miracles and disputes and institutions to himself. At the end of the day, you've got to come to terms with Jesus or you will not understand what biblical Christianity is about. So you need to look for eternal life. That's why I've come. God has put his seal of approval on me for that very purpose. Now, Jesus is talking about what is or is not an appropriate goal when he says, do not work for food that spoils, verse 27, but for food that endures. That's the real goal, not that one. But they hear the word work. And instead of listening to his whole sentence, they just hear the word work and they say, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And in the context, they want to do something in order to get God in Jesus to provide them with more food. How would you like to have a miracle worker who, by fiat, by decree, automatically gave you 85% of your salary? That's what they're looking for. Do do, do you see? Okay, what have I got to do? Tell me what hoops I've got to jump through. What is it that God requires? Tell me what works I must do. And then I get 85% of my salary. This is a good deal. Great religion, this one. And that, of course, is exactly the way people view a lot of religion. It's common in religions in the world, and sadly, it's too common, even in the Christian heritage, where somehow you think that religion is a matter of a kind of tit-for-tat relationship between God and me. I scratch his back, and he scratches my back. I sing him a few songs on Sunday and pay a tithe, some part of a tithe, and pray once in a while, and Try not to sin too grossly, and then God gives me wonderful children and cottage on the beach and all the blessings that I really want that I value most in my life. So tell me what I've got to do, and then I can have my cottage on the beach. Don't don't you see? It's it's a good tit-for-tat arrangement. And they are missing the point entirely. They're on the they're on another planet. They're they're in another world. They're 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 blind as a bat. So, when they say, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God, that is, what God requires, is this. It's not really a work at all. What God requires is that you believe on the one he has sent. So, once again, not only is he focusing attention on himself... But he's focusing on the only way in which you can latch on to the blessings connected with Jesus. By faith. It's not a series of things you do to earn God's favor. You abandon yourself to him. You trust him. The question is, what has he done? They are still thinking in the materialistic terms that have been promoted in their minds by the miracle of the preceding day. So they say, in effect, well... Fair enough, if we have to believe you, what sign will you uh, do to uh, convince us so that we really will rest our faith in you? What what sign authorizes you to demand such kind of faith? And of course, in the context, what they're thinking of is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 all over again. Um, In in fact, they, they offer a little hint. 
Did you see what the text says? What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? That you want our, our trust? Do a sign. What will you do to warrant this trust? Hint, our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness. That is, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. We got you there. We've even got a Bible text to prove it. <laughs> Jesus says, very truly I tell you. Correction number one. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father. In other words, you can so focus on Moses that you miss the, the fact that God is the one who gives the old covenant. God is the one who gives the law. God is the one who gives the blessing. God is the one who provides the serpent in the wilderness. God is the one who gives the food. God is the one who gives the manna. That's the first correction. Second correction. The ultimate manna is not what your forefathers ate in the wilderness. That was only a sign, as we'll see, a type. We'll see this in a few moments. That was only a provisional thing, something that pointed forward. No, 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 no. The true bread from heaven, the true manna, is something that my Father gives. He gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So here, of course, Jesus is setting up himself again as the one whom God has given to give life. Do, do, do you see, we don't think of somebody giving you bread as giving you life. But in the first century, because bread was the staple, then if you get bread, you get life. You, you get food. You don't, you don't starve. And so in the spiritual domain, if you're going to have eternal life, you must have God's bread. You must have God's provision, God's manna. And the ultimate manna is not what they had in the desert. I'm it, Jesus says. So Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he himself is God's manna. And that is accessed by faith, by believing in Christ Jesus. This is reminiscent of something Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the law. So, number two, Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he does his Father's will. Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he does his Father's will. Verses 34 to 40. Clearly, his opponents, in verse 34, still understand very little. They remind us of the woman at the well Two chapters earlier in John 4, Jesus goes on about how he himself is the living water. And she says, sir, give me this water. But what she's thinking of is still water from the well. She's still thinking at a material plane. So also here, sir, give us this bread. Always give us this bread. Ah, yes. Always shows what they really want. The repetition of the miracle from the day before. You did it once, do it again. Always do it. Do it day after day after day. That's how I get 85% increase in, in my income level. Do, do, do you see? Always give us this bread from heaven. Uh, your theological shop talk is just a bit much. It goes over our heads. and We don't know much about that. Just, just give us this stuff. Then Jesus declared what has been implicit in the conversation all along. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now what Jesus is doing is 
peeling back the metaphor. Now it becomes clear that when Jesus speaks of himself as the bread of life, he does not mean to say, because I'm the bread, eat me. Because I provide spiritual drink, guzzle me down. He's going to use that language later when he preserves the metaphor afresh. But now he peels back the metaphor to show that although he is the bread of life, this has normal categories behind it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Well, that's not what you say about normal bread. You know, if you're really hungry and you've got a loaf of bread on the kitchen counter, you don't say, if you're really hungry, come to the bread. It's really not all that satisfying, even if it's raisin bread with cinnamon topping. It's just, it's just not all that satisfying. And you realize that, 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 that now the, the metaphor is being stripped away. You, you've got to close with Jesus in some sense. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. If you really, really, really want to be satisfied by, by Jesus and this, this chunk of bread, go to the bread and say, I believe. The categories just don't don't work. You're, they're, they're, they're on different planes, do you see? There's the, the plane of the metaphor that gets picked up again and again and again that we'll, we'll keep looking at in this chapter. But then he purposely pulls back the veil over the metaphor so that he shows what he's actually saying. He himself is the bread from heaven. Not only does he provide the bread the day before in the feeding of the 5,000, in another sense, He is the bread. Not only so, he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's answering there always. They're thinking of material bread that you've got to get every day, every day, every day. So we want a daily miracle. Just as in the Old Testament, they had the daily miracle of the manna provided again and again and again, six days a week. But now, no, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is an all-satisfying nourishment. We used to sing an old song. um, Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but all the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy. And that's the experience, I'm sure, of many in this room. You try a variety of religions, pursuit of money and wealth. You, pers- you pursue power. You pursue education. None of which things is intrinsically bad. But when you pursue them as if they're the most valuable things, when you covet them, They become, for you, idols. That's why Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. And gradually you discover they are not worth what they're packaged to be. Some people learn it when they're fairly young. But eventually all of us get older. Australia's billionaires will take out with them exactly what I take out with me when they die. Absolutely nothing. And unless they're completely blind and stupid, eventually they have to see, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, and all the waters failed. 
And what Jesus promises instead is, is nourishment that really is satisfying. I've been with Christians in Papua New Guinea, in strange little huts with holes in the roofs to let the smoke out, biblically illiterate, just plain illiterate. Their language is being broken down for the first time into written form. But some of these are brothers and sisters in Christ who know Christ and discover that he is satisfying. Here's another order of manna, of bread, of drink that is utterly satisfying. But as for you, verse 36, as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. You've seen at a certain level, but you haven't seen. You saw the miracle, you don't see its significance. You, you saw the power, but you don't see that, that by providing you with bread, I am indicating that I am the bread. Elsewhere, Jesus provides wine, but he is himself, the new life himself. He provides water, um, but he himself is the living water. Indeed, while they do not believe despite what little they have seen, this does not mean that Jesus' mission is a failure, verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. This verse, it has to be said, has often been misconstrued. For those of you who are interested in such categories, some people say that the first verse sounds Calvinistic. And the second part of the verse sounds Arminian. If you don't know what those categories are, don't worry about it. You haven't lost too much. (laughs) The first category means that God is in charge. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Rest in it. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. That means you're all invited. You can all come and it all depends on you. That's the way the verse is sometimes understood. So some people have called this not a Calvinistic verse and not an Arminian verse, but a Calminian verse, (laughs) which hurts my head. Uh, but, But it fails to understand the logic of the flow. Do you see in the context, Jesus is answering the question, has the mission failed because some people are not believing? And his answer is, well, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. The mission can't fail. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I will build my church. Our confidence in the future of the gospel in Australia is not, at the end of the day, on how effective we are in our actual service, though we are charged to be fruitful and faithful, but on the fact that God calls people to himself. Christ saves all those whom the Father has given him. My father was a church planter in French Canada. And French Canada, when I was growing up, was a pretty hard place to serve with the gospel. French Canada at the time had about six and a half million people. And as recently as 1972, there were only about 35 French language churches, none with more than 30 or 40 people, in a population of six and a half million. And um, There were other churches, but only about 35 evangelical churches of any sort of description. And it was a pretty discouraging time. 
when I was a, a boy in the 1950s, um, in 1959, the Belgian Congo, as it then was, erupted in civil war and ultimately became, uh, it's changed names several times, uh, Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and so forth. And at that time, there was so much violence and bloodshed that a lot of the missionaries went home. <clears throat> it was just dangerous. Some of them were Americans, and they looked around for another part of the world they could go to where they spoke French. So some of them looked north across the Canadian border and went to French Canada. And this was a tremendous encouragement initially for people like my dad, who had learned French as a young man in order to plant churches in French Canada. <clears throat> of course, they don't understand Canadian culture quite, but at least they've got the language and they'll, they'll work into things pretty quickly. Not one of them lasted more than six months. Not one. So in my teens then, in 1959, I asked my father, what's the matter with these people? Are they wimps? And my father, who was much milder and meeker than his son would ever be, said, Don, you've got to understand that... Uh, They've worked in a part of the world where they've seen a lot of fruit and growth. They've built seminaries and Bible colleges and seen denominations spring up and men and women get converted by the tens of thousands and built hospitals and institutions and so on. So, so they're used to seeing fruit everywhere <clears throat> Everywhere they, they, they go. They've, they, they've seen fruit, some persecution, but some, some real fruit. And so they come here and they discover that they can go through a whole year of preaching and nobody gets converted. They think this is a sign that God must want them somewhere else. So they, so they leave. So I said with all of my matchless 14-year-old insight, well, why don't you go someplace where you make more of your life then? <laughs> my dad turned on me. He said, I stay. Because God has many people in this province. You see, he was echoing what God had given to Paul when he was discouraged in Corinth. Preach on, Paul, because God has many people in this city. Now, you're called to be faithful and to be intelligent and to give a reason for the hope that is in you and all the rest. But at the end of the day, your confidence is in the fact that all that the Father has given Jesus will come to him. And then once they've come to him, he'll keep them. You see, the second part of verse 37 is a figure of speech called elicitis. Elicitis is a figure of speech in which you affirm something by denying the opposite. How many were at the concert last night? Oh, not a few. By which you mean quite a lot. Do you see? You deny something in order to affirm the opposite. So what does verse 37b say? Whoever comes to me, I will never drive them out. That's what the Greek verb means. Now, I won't drive them out. Uh, it's alidities. I will keep them in. So do you hear the logic? Of course, you haven't seen, you haven't believed, but don't worry. God's plan is still working out. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And in coming to me, well, I'm going to keep them in. Why will I keep them in? 
For, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. In other words, for Jesus to lose those whom the father has given him would require that he is either disobedient or unable to do the father's will. That's what it would require. It's remarkable, isn't it? Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he does his Father's will. He accomplishes God's good purpose in saving all those whom the Father has given him. You who have been a Christian for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 60 years, 70 years, do you know why you're still a Christian? Because of grace. Because Jesus does his Father's will. He came down to heaven to do his Father's will. And there we rest our confidence. Number three. Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he reveals God to us. Verses 41 to 48. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. It wasn't the bread bit that tripped them up. It was the coming down from heaven bit. They thought, hey, we know this dude's parents. He's just down the road. He's making himself out to be somebody important. This is Jesus, as far as we're concerned. Joseph is his dad. We know his mom. And he speaks, I came down from heaven. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Their grumbling, in other words, does not mark discernment. It marks a kind of rebellion against revelation. If Jesus really did come down from heaven, then their part is to bow before him and trust him. For them to put themselves in a place where they can stand over him means they're rejecting his claims immediately. No, no. What's required for people to see the truth is also highlighted in antecedent scripture. It is written, verse 45, they will all be taught by God. This is a summary of Old Testament texts like Isaiah 54, 13, addressed to the restored city of Jerusalem. All of your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be your children's peace. It's parallel to what Jesus says about the new birth in John chapter 3. At the end of the day, to see the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, to believe in Christ, turns finally on being taught by God. It takes God's illumining spirit to enable us to see and believe. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. That is, I'm the bread of life in that sense. Your response to this revelation is to trust me, to ask for mercy, to see me. And thus, Jesus is the one who mediates God's life because he reveals God to us. And finally, 
the most important one of all. Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he gives his life on our behalf. And now we're focusing on verses 49 to 58. I don't know if you're hungry, but maybe on your drive home tonight you'll pull off at a fast food joint. Which one? Well, because I've flown here from Chicago, let's pretend it'll be McDonald's. <laughs> so supposing you buy yourself a McDonald's hamburger, what will you be eating? Dead lettuce. <laughs> Dead tomato. Dead cow. Dead wheat or barley or both. Everything that you eat in that hamburger is dead. Except for a few minerals like salt, of which there's probably too much. It never was alive, so you cannot really intelligently refer to it as dead. But all the rest, it's dead. And in fact, it died for you. If that cow didn't die, you'd have nothing to eat. Extrapolate that far enough down and you die. Either the cow dies or you die. Either the wheat dies, the tomato dies, the lettuce dies, or you die. Don't don't, don't you see? Now, that seems strange to us. It promotes giggles and a little bit of discomfort because we get our food at the IGA. But if you live on a farm, you know where your food comes from. You live on a farm, you shoot a roux. That's what you do. (laughs) Have kangaroo hamburgers on the barbie. The roux died for you. Either the roux lives or you live, but not both. Did you see? Now that's what happens in the language that that Jesus uses here in these verses from John. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. In other words, this is life and bread at a higher level. This is talking now about eternal life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Still reviewing, still summarizing. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews finally fasten in, not on the come down from heaven part, but on the bread from heaven part. And they say, this is a bit gross. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Is he introducing a measure of cannibalism into Judaism? Jesus doesn't back down. He says, very truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, verse 53, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Now, what does that mean? Well, there have been many people across the centuries of the church that think that this is actually talking about Holy Communion. They have the kind of view of the Lord's table, of Holy Communion, of the Eucharist, that means that there is a kind of 
transfer of life into you when you actually eat the elements. Some te- sectors of Christendom argue that, that, that somehow when the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood, that there is a transmutation, a, a, a transformation of the elements so that somehow all there, there is in your ingesting a, a taking in of the life of God. This is really talking about what happens in the Lord's Supper. And in fact, part of their proof for their view of the transformation of, of the elements into the body and blood of Christ is, is based on John 6. But although that view is very widely pushed, it really doesn't work. First, throughout the New Testament and into the early centuries of the church beyond the New Testament, when the elements are spoken of, they're spoken of as the body and blood of Christ. Here, interestingly enough, it's the flesh and body and blood of Christ. Moreover, this is spoken before the Lord's Supper has even been instituted. John 6 is a long time before the Passion Week when the communion rite was actually introduced. So if this is referring to communion, you are supposed to imagine that Jesus is talking in terms that they could not possibly have understood because the communion had not yet been invented. Not only so, but earlier on, as we saw back in verse 35, Jesus himself had stripped back the metaphorical language he was using. To eat this bread is to come to Jesus and believe on him. It's not simply to ingest a little bit of bread that has been magically transformed. In in other words, it has failed to read this passage in its context. And worst of all, it fails to see that the language of bread has a different set of connotations to what we have today. To say that Jesus is the bread of life is to say that you must have him or you die. He is the necessity He is the staple. He is the one who provides eternal life. Without him, you're dead. He dies so that you live. Just as the cow dies or the kangaroo dies or the chicken dies or the tomato dies. So that you live. Do do, do, do you see? It's his life or your life. And he gives his life for us. And thus, without Jesus, the bread of life, there is no eternal life. None. You remain damned and dead. At one level, this is in line with a lot of treatment of Old Testament themes that you find in the Gospels. Sometimes when we ask the question, what is the connection between the Old Covenant and the new, between the promises and the fulfillment. Sometimes the promises are verbal predictions. And the fulfillments are events that take place to fulfill those verbal predictions. But sometimes the promises are not so much in verbal predictions as in models of things, types, patterns. So, in the Old Testament, there is the Passover. And every year, Jews gather together and have a Passover meal, which which looks back to that first Passover when the lamb was slaughtered and the blood was sprinkled on the two doorposts and on the lintel and the family ate together, ready to depart 
and escape from the slavery in Egypt and cross at the Red Sea. So year after year after year, families gather to celebrate the Passover. And this they are commanded to do the next year and 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 a hundred years later and two hundred years later and a thousand years later. And still they're celebrating until eventually some must ask the question. Is that Passover from slavery in Egypt all there is? Or is this celebration pointing to yet greater release, greater liberation, greater freedom? Paul understands things in exactly that category, which is why he can write to the Corinthians and say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And so it's not long before we discover that Jesus is the true temple. Yes, the temple is the meeting place between God and sinners, but the true ultimate meeting place between God and sinners is Jesus. He's the true temple. Yes, there were priests that offered up sacrifices in the Old Testament, but Jesus himself is the ultimate priest. Yes, yes, there were sacrifices in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Yes, there was manna provided by God in the Old Testament, but Jesus himself is the ultimate bread from heaven. Don't you see? The way that the Old Testament points forward is by institutions, by types, by models of things, as well as by verbal predictions. Thus, Jesus is the ultimate manna. This is the direction in which the Old Testament provision of manna by God himself comes to ultimate fruition. And now he says, in language that is meant to shock, so that we see clearly its substitutionary impact, either I live and you die, Or I die and become your bread and you live. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died like flies in the wilderness. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. All that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, eternal life now, the spirit is the down payment of the promised inheritance, resurrection existence in the new heaven and the new earth, fellowship in the church of Jesus Christ, sins forgiven. All that we have now and will ever have in all of eternity comes because Jesus, as the bread from heaven, dies that we may live. Let us pray. In truth, Lord God, those of us who have known you for many years have indeed tasted and seen that you are good. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Open our eyes that we may see how glorious is this provision of spiritual bread that grants us eternal life, both for this age and for the age to come. Grant that we may find utter satisfaction in him. Forbid that we should be snookered by the temporary life powers of this age blinding us to the glories of the life yet to come in all of its consummated splendor. 
And for those who are here, Lord God, for whom these things are entirely novel, we recognize that at the end of the day, no one comes to you unless you draw them. Draw them now, we beg of you. Enable them to see and believe. For this is the way one eats and drinks. We come to your dear son and trust him. Grant that in the quietness of this moment, some even now will lift their hearts to you and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We're now going to stand and uh, respond to the glorious truth of Jesus' death for us with our final song, To God Be the Glory.